most people, right, uh, we're lions here on your show, I know, but too many people are not lions. Too many people are sheep. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 172, and that means you can find the show notes for today's show over at lionsofliberty.com slash 172. And if it sounds like I have a little more skip in my step today than usual, not that I don't always have skip in my step, but it's because it's the first show of the new year of 2016. And not only that, but it's the first episode of our brand new three-day-per-week format, with the addition of the Felony Friday podcast this coming Friday. So we've got today's show. You've got another show coming on Wednesday and Felony Friday this coming Friday. Very exciting stuff. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select. This is an incredibly exciting alternative to the standard corporatist Obamacare insurance that so many of us have become saddled with. Start the new year right by getting a fresh start with your health care. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is a professor and chair of philosophy at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. He is the creator and editor of a series of books on philosophy and pop culture, including Seinfeld and philosophy, The Simpsons and philosophy, even The Matrix and philosophy. He is most recently the author of The Free Market Existentialist, Capitalism Without Consumerism. I want to welcome in Mr. William Irwin. William, are you ready to roar? Yeah, I'm ready to roar, Mark. All right. I love it. I love it. Call me Bill. Bill. We'll go with Bill. I like that. That sounds a little less formal. Yeah. And we do a less formal show here. We just like to have a good chat. So um, we'll start our chat by just finding out. I want to learn a little bit more about yourself, how you kind of got to where you are. So, Bill, why don't you tell us how you first became interested in the realm of philosophy overall? And how did that lead you to a belief in free markets and individual liberty? Well, it's a long road, as you might imagine. So I'll give you the short version. I guess I had uh, what you might call an existential crisis as uh as a teenager, wondering what it was all about, what's the meaning of it all, what's the big picture, and uh, philosophy was the uh, the natural subject to study in college to indulge that uh, that interest and that passion, and I became interested in existentialism, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and in philosophy more broadly. But I'm a real kind of latecomer to uh, the liberty movement and to politics in general. Basically, I was satisfied uh, with things if I was left alone. Uh, And I guess it was not until well into my 30s that I figured out that I really was not being left alone to the degree and the extent that I'd like to be. And so I started looking into some of the connections between the philosophy that I was studying and some political philosophy. That's a really interesting point, Bill, because a lot of people I'll hear say, well, look, I don't really care about politics. I just kind of want to be left alone. And then you start to realize, especially as you get older, maybe start to make a little more money, uh, start to try to do things in the world where you start to realize, like, wait a minute, I'm really not being left alone at all. So I can choose to disengage from political discourse if I like, but that's not going to result in me being left alone. The only way you can really be left alone is to be out there advocating to actually be left alone and, and pointing out the ways in which we're not. That's it. That's my story. So, Bill, you mentioned all these philosophers you were reading. So just to kind of get a general idea, what are? can you just name maybe one or two of those philosophers who were most influential, in, I guess, in those early years? Yeah. So uh, the French philosopher and existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre was uh, a big influence and in importance for me, as was the, uh, the German philosopher and often considered an existentialist, 
Friedrich Nietzsche. Then how did you eventually, because I know you're also an Ayn Rand fan as well, and I'm curious because a lot of those guys, especially Sartre, are associated with communism because that's the path, the political path that existentialism, I guess, essentially led them to. And yet, you know, you actually have views that come from all sides of this sort of spectrum, I guess, in terms of politics. So how did that all come together for you? Yeah, I guess maybe I'm uh, a little out of the norm, uh, though, from what you say, maybe not as much as I might think uh, in that other people just want to be left alone and didn't realize it. Uh, but uh, the typical story of uh, of the libertarian, right, is that they read uh, Ayn Rand as a teenager and fall in love. I, I think I was well into my 30s before I read Ayn Rand. Uh, and uh, uh, it's really her fiction more than her straight philosophy that uh, has resonated with me, Atlas Shrugged uh, in particular. And you're right, the uh, sort of proto-existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre was associated with uh, French communism and socialism, which is the complete other end of the political spectrum from uh, Randian uh, objectivism uh, or libertarianism more broadly speaking. But to me, the two uh, really go together quite well, the philosophy of existentialism uh, and the political philosophy of libertarianism. Before we get too much into uh, how these two philosophies can intersect, just so my listeners can get more familiar that might not be you know, that certain about what existentialism actually is. So can you just put out what sort of your view, your definition of existentialism would be? Yeah, good question. Thanks for asking that, Mark. I'll stay away from textbook type definitions and that sort of thing. Yeah, we, we want the Bill Irwin special. Yeah, all right, I'll give <laughs> you that. So existentialism, as the name uh, might imply, is a philosophy that dwells on what it's like to be an existing individual, as opposed to what it's like to be a member of a group. And so the primary concerns of existentialism tend to be uh, freedom and the responsibility that comes along with that freedom and the way in which uh, I can use my freedom to create my own individuality and to be a genuine or what the uh, existentialists would call an authentic person. So how did that sort of view of existentialism, which you mentioned there, include sort of, you know, the ideas of freedom, personal responsibility? So why did your influence, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, why did he become a communist? Why did he not sort of see that view of existentialism through to the ideas of individual liberty as you seemingly have? Yeah, that's always been a mystery for me. And so that's part of the uh, the motivation for the book, The Free Market Existentialist. Uh, this is a philosophy, uh, Sartre's philosophy is existentialism, which emphasizes our freedom. And he's really dwelling on uh, our metaphysical freedom, uh, the way in which we have free will, in which we get to make our own decisions. And we're not uh, simply like animals working on instinct or like... Uh, rocks falling downward, uh, obeying the law of gravity. But we uh, human beings are special in the sense that we have freedom to choose. And with that comes the responsibility, right? And uh, the short version of the story is that before World War II, Sartre was a lot like the way I described myself, and maybe a lot of your listeners can identify. He just didn't care about politics, that didn't seem to be what was important. What seemed to be important was how, in the course of daily life, one could be an individual and not just kind of get pushed along by social forces. After World War II, the French intellectual set uh, came to be dominated by socialists and communists. Uh, and uh, at the risk of simplifying the story, in a way, it's the same old story. 
where a guy falls in with the wrong crowd. Uh, there was tremendous peer pressure to conform to socialist and communist uh, ideas. And so we have Sartre's philosophy morphing from one that emphasizes the uh, freedom and responsibility of the individual to one which then shifts to suggesting that our freedom is limited by social and economic circumstances and uh, that uh, no one would be free until all were free, with free being understood as being some sort of utopia in which uh, nobody was unduly influenced by social or economic structures. Uh, so to me, that's where he lost his way. Uh, and so uh, part of what I try to do in the book, The Free Market Existentialist, is take the early philosophy of Jean-Paul Sartre and uh, apply it to social and political philosophy of libertarianism, which holds us not only free in the political realm, but responsible in the individual realm. So it seems like what Sarda really had down was the idea of internal freedom and kind of being free in your mind and free to you know, view the world however you want and, and things like that. But when it came to political structure, he kind of saw communism as a way to, I guess, make all of man free in some way against the oppression and, and the injustices that are were going along from capitalism or what have you. Is that kind of sum it up? Yeah, that's a really nice uh, way of, of recapping. Oh, good, because I felt like I, I wasn't sure of that. <laughs> so I'm right. glad that you think it was a nice right. way to put it. Very good. So I just want to delve just a little bit more into existentialism, because honestly, most of what I learned about existentialism is through your book. It's a philosophy I'm vaguely familiar with, but I've never really dived into in, in great detail. So can you kind of describe, from my understanding, existentialism basically says that the world is meaningless. And, you know, because the world is meaningless, we, we shouldn't spend any time trying to really find meaning. We should just kind of live freely within our own minds and and express ourselves in, in whatever ways we so choose for ourselves, for what benefits us. So um, well, first of all, can you just tell me if, if that's remotely accurate, I guess? Yeah, that is accurate. So I, I had mentioned my own sort of philosophical awakening being what we sometimes call an existential crisis, right? I, I had lost the uh, the religious faith of my upbringing, and I was asking, well, if I can't look to church or religion for meaning, uh, where can I get it? Is there any? And uh, it's a sort of frightening place to be for any person. Uh, and the existentialist view of things, I think, fits very nicely with the concept of spontaneous order, uh, which plays a real role in Austrian economics and a lot of libertarian thinking, rather than look for a kind of a top-down creation, right, as one would from a, a religious perspective in thinking that uh, God creates and uh, gives meaning to uh, an individual life. Uh, instead, the idea in existentialism is that, well, while there may not be any of that top-down uh, creation of meaning, uh, that doesn't mean that you can't create your own meaning. Uh, and so that's part of what uh, is involved in defining yourself as an individually existing person and assigning the, the value and purpose uh, to your own life. There's a really interesting phrase, Bill, that you mentioned in your book uh, several times, and it's the phrase that, that we are condemned to be free. So can you describe what that means? I found that really intriguing. Yeah, yeah. So that's Sartre's phrase, right? And so he's using it uh, in the uh, the existentialist sense, which you nicely captured by uh, pointing out is like being free within your own mind, right? Nobody can uh, tell me how to think or how to conceive of myself and the world. But it's also true in a broader social political sense. Basically, what the, the phrase uh, means, condemned to be free, is that freedom is a heavy burden. 
that uh, most people, right, uh, we're lions here on your show, I know, but too many people are not lions, too many people are sheep, right? And they would rather be told what to do and follow along with, uh, with rules and prescriptions for how they should live. And the existentialist idea is that this heavy burden is actually a gift, right? It's a gift to have uh, this tremendous freedom so that you can define yourself and live according to the values and meaning and purpose that you give. And uh, the, the point that I try to make uh, in the book, The Free Market Existentialist, uh, is that this idea can and should be extended into the social and political realm so that we don't need uh, the government to be telling us how to live uh, and what rules to follow in nearly the way in which we do. So basically, it's this idea that, I mean, yeah, you could even make a case that maybe humans in general might be happier if we didn't have so much freedom of thought. If we were all just drones and we're just told what to do and never knew that there was another way, another way to actually think for ourselves, if we never had that knowledge, maybe we would be happy and just go along freely. But when we know we are free and we know we can have this sort of our own internal thought process about everything, we can interpret things the way we like, we can experience the world in whatever way we choose to. When you have that sort of knowledge, which all humans innately do, it's a challenge. It makes life a struggle because we're always having to make decisions for ourselves. We can't just sit back and although many people end up kind of putting themselves in a situation where they don't think as much for themselves, I think we both see that in our own society. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I mean, when you look to uh, the life that most people live, uh, they're following orders, following rules uh, for the vast majority of their day. And too many people, when you take that away from them, they don't really even know what to do. Think of the person who has two weeks vacation and gets bored or think of the person who retires and doesn't really know what to do anymore uh, with themselves. Strangely, I see it sometimes with my students who I have to sign off on their uh, their course selections for the coming semester, and too many of them come to my office asking me what I think they should take. Uh, and I want to kind of rattle them uh, by the throat and say, this is college and it's not high school anymore, and, and you're free to choose what you want to take. Uh, and you should figure out what you want to take. And that's just sort of a, a microcosm for the way in which too many people uh, live their lives, looking for one authority or another, whether it be religious or governmental or whatever it may be, to tell them what they should do next. Sure. And it's kind of hard to blame your students for having that attitude because it's the attitude that we're given you know, all through childhood. When we're in school, we're told, here are the classes you must take. Here are the texts you must take. Here are the books you must read. Uh, we're told, we're dictated all these things. And even later in life, we're kind of told, you must go to college. You must get a degree. You must take out these loans. And even later in life, in many ways, we're told, you must get married by X age. You must have kids by this age. You must buy a house. There's all these things that are always drilled into our heads about what we must do, what we must do to be great citizens or great real adults or whatever you want to call it. So it's not surprising that kids show up to you and say, hey, what do we do? What do we learn about? That's it. I mean, potentially, if you want it this way, all of life can be scripted for you. As you say, you need to go to this college, major in this uh, major, get married by this age, work in this job, vacation in this particular place. And that's all of the kind of thing that Sartre and the existentialists are uh, reacting uh, against, that what you really need to do is define yourself, become your own individual person, your own genuine and authentic person, whatever that may turn out to be, rather than simply living a scripted life. 
Bill, another thing that you bring up in your book uh, in terms of kind of coming to these views is the role of human evolution. So how does human evolution, what role does that play in your view of existentialism and free markets? Yeah, so this is another place where uh, my view is a little bit out of the norm, uh, in addition to trying to bring Sartre and the existentialists uh, into the realm of free markets, I'm trying to harmonize them with the evolutionary theory as well, because the reason that th this is uh, seen as a little out of the norm is that uh, Sartre claims that there's no human nature uh, at all, that we're completely free to completely define ourselves, a sort of a, a blank slate approach to human nature. And uh, I'm arguing in the book that that's a bit overstated, that uh, we do have a certain biological evolutionary endowment, but it's, of course, not determining or defining. Uh, our genes have a lot of influence, but not complete control. And in some ways, you can see that uh, as analogous to any kind of social or economic structures we may find ourselves in. Yes, they may exert influence over us, but they don't have complete control. And so we can acknowledge uh, our uh, evolutionary baggage, as well as the social baggage that we uh, find ourselves burdened with, and yet fully define ourselves, react to that, and maintain and exert our freedom in response to it. Along those lines, too, I think it's worth pointing out uh, a lot of people may not be fully aware of the extent to which free market thinking uh, was a real influence on Darwin in the development of the theory of evolution. Adam Smith and the idea of the invisible hand and the idea that we can have order without intended design is something uh, that was a major influence uh, in tripping the switch for Darwin to put things together in the biological realm. And that carries over into existentialism as well. Again, we don't need to look for top-down creation. We can have human action without necessarily having design, and we can have order come of that. Sure. And, and of course, Darwin's ideas concerning evolution kind of stick a dagger in the idea of sort of a top-down creation of intelligent design to the extent that we should be told how to live and, and dictate our lives. And that, that going against that grain sort of ties in right into both existentialism as well as individual liberty. So the connection is actually a, quite obvious when you lay it out like that. Well, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of a rebellious streak that runs through all of it and uh, real nice uh, room in there for individual liberty. Well, Bill, individual rights is what this show is all about. And we're going to dig a little deeper into the weeds with you on this stuff in just a minute. But first, I have to take a second to tell my listeners a little bit more about today's sponsor, Health Excellence Select. As someone who purchases my own health insurance, I was completely frustrated by my escalating premiums and deductibles after the implementation of Obamacare, and this forced me to seek an alternative. And I found that alternative in the concept of health sharing, where groups of like-minded individuals get together to voluntarily cover each other's medical costs. Health Excellence Select will help you take charge of your health care without having to deal with all the costs and hassle of handling paperwork and spending hours on the phone with bureaucrats just trying to get paid. They will handle all the dirty work for you while also providing tons of valuable tools to help you stay healthy. Listeners of this program can get the VIP treatment and get signed up directly by my great representative, Jeff Cantor. Give him a call at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Until then, head on over to lionsofliberty.com health for more information. Now, Bill, in your book, you quote a philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, and he believes that natural rights are nothing more than 
quote-unquote, nonsense upon stilts. And you make it clear that you do not believe there is such a thing as objectively defined rights. Now, I've had people on the show before that believe as you do, believe that all rights are sort of human constructs, and I have other people on that that take the sort of objectivist, natural rights side of things. So I'm just curious how you sort of... Because you do advocate for free markets, which implies a certain level of rights, I guess, in some ways. So how do you, I guess, justify advocating free markets how do you how would you define free markets in a context where you also at the same time say that well there's not a, an objective way to define rights yeah it's a difficult task that i set myself in that regard uh, if one accepts the idea of natural rights right life liberty pursuit of happiness or in the lockean sense a natural right to uh, to property. Why don't we actually stop there for one second and just uh, tell me why you, I guess, disagree with that general notion with the Lockean philosophers, people who actually believe there is a, a natural right to, to negative rights anyway, to be left alone, to not be attacked and, and certain things like that, where you would say there's not really a, a right in that sense. Yeah, well, so I find that kind of right to only possibly be rooted in, uh, in divine command. Uh, now, I, I realize some... Uh, Randy and objectivists uh, believe that they can construct those rights in some sort of natural basis, in some sort of Aristotelian basis. I'm just not convinced by those arguments. Uh, so someone who is uh, a religious believer, a theist, I can plainly see how they can uh, find those rights uh, issuing from the creator, which is the way in which Locke saw them issuing. But in the absence of that, uh, I don't see any kind of basis for natural rights. And then, okay, so then how, if you have no basis for natural rights or, you know, something you can actually define as objectively, these are what human beings' rights are, how do you then take that concept and apply it to the idea of free markets where a lot of people would say, well, I mean, our, our free markets are based on property rights. Our free markets are based on certain agreed upon rights that we have to have in place in order for markets to actually function as free. Well, I think the operative phrase, Mark, is the one that you just used there, agreed upon. And so I think we can have contracts even if we don't have natural rights. And so the most basic right I would want to contract for would be the right to property in my own person. And then stemming from that, uh, the, uh, the fruits of the labor uh, that issues from my person. So I, I just wouldn't appeal to some kind of natural realm where these rights exist before the contract for them. Basically, people, I would say, would want to contract not to be harmed in exchange for not harming others uh, and for having a property right in their person and what flows from the, the labor uh, of their person. But I can conceivably admit uh, that uh, someone might be willing to uh, divest themselves of those rights and so really all of this comes back to the idea of contract as I see it. Yeah, I believe in your book, you, you basically use the, the idea that of prudential decision making over moral reasoning. Like the people that the reason that people come together in and create these institutions, create free markets, create governments to protect their property, it's because it basically makes sense prudently because if people can do that well that ensures that they won't be attacked and it makes sense in the terms of survival which ties back into your ideas about evolution that they form these sort of contracts form even a minimal state as i, I believe you advocate for as opposed to just doing it because they they believe in some sort of moral good or moral right is that about correct mark you've clearly read my book more carefully than i have <laughs> but yeah that that's the uh, the essence uh, of my argument that in the absence of uh, an objective uh, moral or natural right, 
we're left with prudential uh, decision making, right? In other words, one uh, is going to be inclined to uh, make decisions and take actions that accord with what one sees to be in one's rational uh, best interest. Uh, this is not to say that we're at all perfect in doing that. Uh, I wish I were, but yeah, everybody falls short of that ideal. But nonetheless, everybody's inclined in that way. And uh, really, we can count on that for uh, much of the work that we need to get done in terms of cooperation. And uh, of course, uh, in, in a world of, uh, of saints, we wouldn't need any kind of, uh, of agreements. We wouldn't need any kind of uh, government to protect those agreements or contracts. But none of us uh, are saints in that sense. And so prudentially, it makes sense for us to uh, agree to have some sort of uh, oversight, uh, someone to guarantee and protect us uh, from force, uh, fraud, and theft. And so out of that can naturally grow, as you say, the minimal state. Would it be fair to say then that you don't believe that there is anything that actually is known as morals? Like that, that's, that's a total fiction. That's, kind of, that's one of the phrases you use in your book is moral fictionalism. Can you kind of describe that phrase and, and how that might relate to you know what most people might think of as morality? Because you might hear you know, Bill Irwin say, well, I don't believe there's anything as morals. And people at home might think, well, what do you mean? It's not immoral to kill another person. It's not immoral to torture a child. So how do you reconcile the idea of there not being any morals with, you know, what many people would clearly see as immoral acts? Yeah, yeah, good. Thank you for asking that. So the idea that that I explore in some depth uh, in the book is that uh, there are evolutionary explanations for why we have uh, the moral feelings and reactions uh, that we do. So anyone who is biologically normal, uh, and this would exclude uh, psychopaths who are, who are not uh, quite uh, the same as we are in terms of their, uh, their, their biochemistry, etc., is going to have uh, a moral reaction to seeing uh, a child uh, gratuitously slapped or uh, witnessing someone steal from another person or commit some random act of violence. And so the argument goes in, in the book, getting into uh, some of the, uh, the evolutionary history behind this, uh, that we evolved in uh, groups of 35 to uh, 150 uh, humans to live uh, in some kind of society together where reciprocity, uh, both in terms of the good, uh, in terms of giving, and taking and also in terms of uh, punishing those uh, who transgress is something uh, that evolved. And so in order to explain why we have the moral feelings and reactions that we have, uh, we don't have to appeal to uh, a god or a platonic realm of, uh, of goodness or virtue or any of that. Uh, there is a, a very basic explanation to it. And it's very much like the explanation for why we uh, enjoy the taste of uh, food that is sweet or uh, fatty because it packed nutritional value to us and had survival value. Likewise, we approve of certain actions. We have the uh, feeling of moral approval and we have the feeling of moral disapproval for certain actions because it uh, was something that helped us along in our evolutionary history. And there's probably no getting away from uh, many of those feelings. Uh, and most of us really wouldn't want to. I don't want to be like a psychopath who can cause harm to others without having the, uh, the cringe uh, and the uncomfortable feeling as a result. 
Well, that's an interesting way to put it because, I mean, if we were all psychopaths, none of us had those, that emotional capacity to be horrified by certain things, then our race wouldn't last very long because we wouldn't be protecting each other. We would just be, I guess, killing each other and, and cheating on each other and, and lying to each other. And some people do that, but uh, those people do not make up the majority of the world. And if it did, I, you know, the human race would probably wouldn't last very long. So it's definitely an, an interesting way to look at it. I mean, would you say that when, when so like if we see some horrible event, let's say the Paris attacks, and we are all horrified when we see this. We see that people are, are shot up at, at concerts. We see that there are suicide bombers. These are all acts that, as human beings absolutely horrify us, you would say that that doesn't come from some sort of internal actual morality. It comes from the evolutionary effect of if we weren't horrified and didn't have this emotional response to these things, we would allow them to happen. And if, you know, it would harm our race, our, our survival would not continue if we allowed such events to go on. If most of us, I guess, allowed this sort of thing to go on, which we would, I guess, if we weren't horrified by them. Well, I mean, that, that, so that's right. That That's the explanation. And it also helps to explain why, yes, uh, we're horrified by what happened uh, in Paris, but we can forget about it pretty easily. Uh, and I'll bet I can speak for myself and your listeners uh, may find this true of their own experience that uh, what bothers me or upsets me more is the way... Uh, uh, that one of my son's uh, friends mistreated him on the playground uh, the other day. That's much more on my mind than what happened in Paris. Uh, and, you know, that's not a flattering thing uh, or a happy thing to admit about ourselves. But Adam Smith talks about uh, how someone would hear about uh, an earthquake in China that, that killed millions and it would upset him. Uh, but it wouldn't upset him nearly as much uh, as it would uh, if uh, he... Uh, we're about we're scheduled to have uh, his pinky amputated the next day. Evolution has directed us to react most strongly to what is closest to home, uh, and for good reason, uh, because that is what affects us uh, most directly. That's a, a really interesting way to look at it, because I mean, I guess I don't have a son, but if I did, and if he was on the playground being bullied or got pushed down and maybe broke his arm, I mean, I would be upset by that. At the same time, if I saw the Paris situation on the news the same day, I would be maybe more horrified in the moment. But next week, I would probably be more concerned about my son's broken arm than the events in Paris because my son is my lineage. He is, you know, what's going to carry on my survival of my genes. So it makes more sense, even though if you compare the events side by side, obviously my son getting pushed down and breaking his arm is nowhere near the scale of a tragedy as what happened in Paris. And yet that is what the event that's going to affect me more because it's, it's closer to my personal survival or the, the personal passing on of my genes. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Well, I got to commend you, Bill, because this is a book that I think will interest people from all sides of the aisle, sides of the philosophical aisles, I should say. Uh, there's definitely not just two when it comes to that. But, yeah. uh, you know, I know existentialism is in many ways associated with the left, you know, with beatniks and, you know, writing poetry on the roof and stuff like that. <laughs> and free markets are largely associated with the far right. And, you know, and, and you do a really excellent job of showing how if you hold these ideas or one of them, you're not really necessarily far away from, or you're not, at least you're not excluded from believing the other. They are things that can mix very well. So um, before I let you go, Bill, why don't I just give you your last pitch, your last pitch, why anyone should check out your book if they're advocates of free markets that have no idea about existentialism, or maybe they're existentialists. They Googled existentialism and found this interview, but they're really not free market fans. So why should they take that extra step and go out and get your book? Well, thanks, Mark. I appreciate it and I appreciate the, the whole opportunity and the interview. 
so the, the idea is that uh, the, these are ideas that uh, that go together quite well, free markets uh, and existentialism. Uh, so free markets, as you suggest, are oftentimes associated with uh, the political right, and the political right is oftentimes uh, associated uh, with uh, conservative social values and religious thinking, and that may be all well and good, but the idea is that uh, there is a secular case to be made for free markets. And uh, likewise, from the uh, existentialist starting point, one does not necessarily have to drink the Kool-Aid and, uh, and go down the socialist road just because one finds uh, a secular starting point and an appeal in uh, the existentialist philosophy of uh, individual freedom and responsibility that can be taken beyond the metaphysical and beyond just the freedom uh, within one's own mind and extended into the realm of the social and the political and the economic as well. So uh, I'd be thrilled to hear from anybody uh, who is uh, listening today and thrilled to hear from anybody uh, who reads the book. I can be found at my uh, King's College uh, web address and uh, email address, which is William Irwin, I-R-W-I-N, at kings, K-I-N-G-S dot E-D-U. Always uh, interested in hearing from new people and discussing new ideas. And uh, thanks for being uh, such a pro and uh, having read my book, like I said, more carefully than I think I did, Mark. This has been a great opportunity and, uh, and a fun conversation for me. Well, thanks, Billy. I really appreciate it. Maybe it's time for you to give your book another read, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that might be. You know, I like to know at least vaguely what I'm talking about when my guests come on the show. So reading the book is, is a big help with that. And I, I did definitely find it interesting. So, Bill, I wish you the best of luck with this book and with all of your academic and philosophical pursuits. Keep roaring, Mark. Thanks, Bill. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation there today with Bill Irwin. As you guys may know, if you're listeners of this program, I really do enjoy getting into the weeds sometimes on the philosophy stuff. And many people might blow off philosophy as a meaningless exercise. And you'll hear things like, yeah, that philosophy stuff is great, but we need to focus on the real world. But at its core, philosophy is really just the quest for truth and knowledge about the world around us. So there's no better way to figure out what to do in the real world than by studying philosophy, than by really trying to put effort into what is right, what is wrong, what the meaning of the world is. Existentialism kind of says there is no real meaning. That's not really the direction I come at things from, but it is certainly an interesting subject and an interesting area to get into. And I was glad I, I was able to do that today with Mr. Irwin. Now, when it comes to natural rights, you know, many people like Bill Irwin have reached the conclusion that there is simply no such thing that we don't really have any sort of quote-unquote right to our body, right to property. Rather, he would argue that anything we might view as rights are simply constructs created by men out of expediency. And listeners of this show may know that I hold slightly different beliefs, and I'm not going to attempt to go into a whole spiel about that just in the closing moments of one show, but whenever we talk about this subject, I always recommend the work of a past guest on this show, Mr. Shane Whistler, who to me has made a compelling philosophical case proving the existence of natural rights for making the assertion that individual rights are true concepts which we can indeed induce from observing the world around us. So I do want to, once again, highly recommend his book, Reason and Liberty. We will link to that uh, in the show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 172. And of course, for a totally different perspective on rights, check out Bill Irwin's work, The Free Market Existentialist. I don't want to tell you what's right or wrong. I just want to provide you guys with some of the tools for figuring some of these things out yourselves. 
And if you enjoy, like I do, getting into the weeds on all this philosophical stuff, if you want to get further into this conversation about rights, well, then I invite you over to our private Facebook page, the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just type that into your search bar and it'll show up for you on Facebook, hopefully. We'll also, again, link to that in the show notes for the show. You can, of course, follow our public Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty Come tweet to us. Find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. If you enjoy this program, please do subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, however you listen to the show. And please do go and leave us a five-star rating and a great free review. That stuff really helps us get this show to more people out there. You can also find us on YouTube if you prefer listening that way. You can hear us on the weekend at libertytalk.fm and throughout the week at lrn.fm, the Liberty Radio Network. This coming Wednesday... My guest will be an associate professor of political science at RIT, Lauren Hall, and we'll be discussing all sorts of things from classical liberalism to the gender wage gap. Until then, folks, live long and live free. Head of editing and mastering is John Dauber. Contact Johnny53 at gmail.com.